It's on Tubi. It's looks on, like shit. It's on looks Tubi. Looks like shite, dude. It looks like absolute garbage. Then and now, you know. Speaking my language, on Tubi and looks like garbage. Yeah. Fairly unpleasant. You gotta see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. Oh, you want to crown him? crown him But they are who we thought they were. And we let him on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And also, we have a special guest, filmmaker, educator, and dear friend of the pod. Dear pal. Yes, dear pal of the pod, Alex Sherman. How's it going? It's going great. I'm glad to be here. Hello, my boys. Hello, everybody. Andy is on special mission out of the country. So thank you so much for for filling uh, those big shoes. Look, I don't know about filling Andy's shoes, but uh, I'll do my best. But you know I've been waiting. (laughs) Alex is the kind of guy that'll come in wearing nice cozy slippers. He's not going to put on Andy's big boots. (laughs) Definitely not. I will not be wearing any jerseys either. It's episode 29. And the topic this week was chosen by our guest. So, Alex, you want to uh, tell us what you picked and and why? Sure. Um, Well, you know I'm a sentimental guy. And uh, in the past year or so, uh, for those of you that don't know me, I've been traveling a bit. I've been living for some time back home in Michigan. And so this podcast has been really great for me to like quell the FOMO and, you know, spend some time with my boys. And, you know, not that we weren't texting or, you know, in communication, but what you guys do, as you know, is just what we would have done, what we were doing, um, you know, in person before the pandemic and before you started a podcast. So when I listen to this show, no matter what the topic is, I think of my pals. I think of my boys. I miss my friends. Yeah, I remember when we first started, you had texted us saying that Andy's smoke-filled clubhouse felt like it was coming out of the speakers in your car. You could smell the smoke. You could feel the heat. Yeah, driving cross-country to and fro, I was just there in in the clubhouse with, with my boys. And so when Marsh, when I got the text from Marsh and I knew I got to pick the theme, I didn't even have to think about it. And I don't think I thought about it previously, but instantly it came into my head. We were going to watch some movies about pals, and uh, I'm sure we can elaborate on that. I don't know if we're going to talk about PlayStation, but you're my buddies, you're my friends, you're my TM official pals. Andy included. <laughs> we miss Andy. Yeah. As, a, as, an, as a regular host on the gauntlet, you have I grant you my permission to talk about PlayStation because I think it's key <laughs> for understanding the pals. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Andy is the one that created it when we uh, were playing PlayStation games together, mostly... Battlefield 1. Yeah, and Battle Royale games, a number of them. We would 
team up in our in our group or our battalion, whatever it was, depending on the game, under the the four letter title P-A-L-S, the PALS. Yeah, it was a it was a nice banner of solidarity for all of us to to rally under as we would turn the tide in many a session and it was thank God for the PALS was uh, the calling card. So when you had announced the topic I was I was quite thrilled. I thought, ah, thank God for the PALS. That's right. On that, um, you two picked some, I don't know if it's cursed or blessed, but certainly a compatible pairing of movies about friendship. So why don't you tell me a little bit about them? I'll go first. I was thinking about all the great movies about friendship. You know, there's a lot of them. And I have a personal favorites like Breaking Away or With Nail and I or several Johnny Toe films. But when I was thinking about picking a movie for, for us to watch, I wanted to find something that, that was kind of specific to us. And we've seen a lot of movies together, the three of us especially. And when I think of watching movies with you two, I think about basically two things. Robert Altman and 90s hood films. And that was where I sort of started, you know, and, and it, it crossed my mind uh, to do something like O.C. and Stiggs, you know, uh, have fun in that way or, or set it off or some of these other films that I know we've we've enjoyed uh, together or, or whatever. And, and ultimately, this led me down the path to, of course, the actor Forrest Whitaker, who is not only in a Robert Altman film himself, but directed uh, some films as well. And I thought this would be a, a great time for all of us to have a nice little chat about Waiting to Exhale from 1995. Directed, of course, by Forrest Whitaker in his feature film debut. The film is based on the novel by Terry McMillan and co-written by Ronald Bass, screenwriter of Rain Man, among many others. And the film is about four black women living in Phoenix, Arizona, and the trials and tribulations of their love lives and their friendship together as they operate as a support system uh, for each other as they move through these sort of troublesome 30s or even 40s that they're in as, as adult women. And it, of course, has an all-star cast as the four leads are Whitney Houston, who plays Savannah Jackson, a television producer who's just recently moved to Phoenix from Colorado. We've got Bernadine, Bernie, played by Angela Bassett, who, when the film starts, is divorced by her husband, played by the great Michael Beach. And she is a former businesswoman, now a housewife, raising her kids and now going through a terrible divorce. We have Robin, played by Leila Roshan, who is a marketing executive and has a, a lot of boyfriends that she can't really uh, sort of deal with or settle on in her tumultuous love life. And then last but not least, Gloria, played by Loretta Devine, who is a single mother of a teenage son, Tariq, played by a young 
Donald Faison. And she uh, is doing the single mother thing uh, and operating a hair salon. And what follows is a year in the life of these four women and their friendship, their love life, and uh, everything in between. And that's not all. There's a couple other things I'd like to say. Uh, <laughs> the cinematography of Waiting to Exhale is by Toyomichi Kurita, who is best known for his work with Alan Rudolph. Speaking of Robert Altman, Kurita also shot Powell Highway and Gahato for Oshima. It's quite a quite an accomplished cinematographer. And the soundtrack is by Kenneth Babyface Edmonds, who wrote all original R&B jams and the orchestral score for the film. And the soundtrack, of course, uh, became a number one uh, hit. There were many hits from the soundtrack. Um, and the film itself was a huge hit. It became uh, something of a social event or social phenomenon in 1995 when it came out. Uh, so yeah, that's the, the brief overview of Waiting to Exhale. Nailed it. Uh, Ryan, why don't you uh, tell me about the movie you picked for us? Th this time around, I also had a rather extensive short list of films that I was considering. I even thought of bringing on Kenyon Company, which um, real studious listeners of The Gauntlet will remember that I recommended in our Portraits of Childhood episode. And one reason I was even really considering it was because there is a character named Sherman that they're ragging the <laughs> entire time. And I thought it could be a fun little gag amongst us all. But when Marsh announced that he was going to do Waiting to Exhale, my mind then returned to another film from 1995 that I had never seen before and was on my list called Now and Then, directed by Leslie Linka Gladder, who many might know from her episodes of Twin Peaks. She occupies a very similar space as a lot of other Hollywood woman filmmakers who were given a chance to make one or two features and then because they didn't meet the, the outrageous, you know, sort of expectations of studio executives or the system itself were sort of sent off to do television for the rest of their careers. But she is a very seasoned television director, not only from Twin Peaks, but doing Homeland, anything, any TV show you can name. Honestly, she's done a couple episodes of. So now and then, me bringing this film on the pod has sort of cursed us now with having four <laughs> characters to keep track of in both films. We've got like eight women that we're all going to come to know and love over the course of our discussion here. And in now and then they're actually doubled, which is another element because there is a now to the then. Um, but I'm going to focus on the then for the purposes of this brief sort of description of the film. And the then in this case is 1970. And it's about a group of four young women living in Shelby in Indiana. Unfortunately, most of this film was shot in Georgia, so I was hoping, you know, this would have some regional appeal that is very present in Waiting to Exhale, but not quite in Now and Then, unfortunately. But it is about a group of four young women. There is Roberta, played by a young Christina Ricci, as a tomboyish young woman. Her mother has tragically passed on when she was very young, and she was raised by her three brothers and her father into a very a rugged lifestyle. Then there is Teeny, played by Thora Birch, who has dreams of being a Hollywood starlet and has uh, sort of a distant parents who are very involved in the country club doings of um, 
Shelby, Indiana. Then there is Samantha, who is played by Gabby Hoffman. Samantha's father has recently left the family, and so it's resulted in a bit of a tense home life. Um, so she has channeled a lot of that energy towards seances. And then, last but not least, there is Chrissy, who is played by Ashley Aston Moore. And Chrissy is, you know, she's a, a bit sheltered. Um, she doesn't like curse words, but she does love her friends. And her friends, their journey itself is is pretty varied, but the I guess the, the sort of heart of it is one night during a seance, they think they have resurrected the body of young Dear Johnny, a 12-year-old who um, died under unknown circumstances. And obviously the closest comparison I could make to this film that many have made before me is that it is sort of the young woman's version of Stand By Me as they are on a quest to try and figure out something related to death, but it's really much more than that. It's about young girlhood, and it's about growing up with a group of friends and how that friendship lasts a lifetime as we see in the now section of the film where they reunite and reflect on this, on this past. And one of the funny things about this film seeing a big studio production I hadn't seen before from the 90s is a film that's very clearly 90s cinema reflecting on the 1970s. And that is its own aesthetic and has its own baggage with it as opposed to something like Waiting to Exhale, which is very firmly placed in the 90s and is trying to absorb the time around it. I do, you know, to kind of cap this off in the way that Marsh, you know, talked about the seasoned pros that were working on Waiting to Exhale, the, the difference here being that uh, the writer is I, Marlene King, who is actually probably more known for her work on the television show Pretty Little Liars. And then there is Uli Steiger, the cinematographer, who has worked on such things as the Spy Who Shagged Me, and a few other Roland Emmerich productions. And then there is also Cliff Eidelman, the composer, who is known for doing the Lizzie McGuire movie and the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. That's one of the explanations for why the score in Now and Then has uh, a bit has more deficiencies than the score in Waiting to Exhale. So that's the, yeah, that's the long, and to make a long story medium, that is, the, uh, that is Now and Then from 1995. As I said to Kyle while we were watching it, should have called it then. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked. I wanted to text you both, but I decided to save it. But I, because it has been over 10 years since I've seen the movie, but I mean, I watched it certainly more than once. And I was expecting way more now. And I was just shocked by how easy of a job those like movie stars had it. They were probably shooting for like two, three days. If Not that, even <laughs> judging by the mise-en-scene yeah. of those particular well, segments. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when it started, I, I liked the now. Um, and even when it immediately left the now, I was often hoping it would return back to the now so they could reflect on yeah. what was happening as if they were jamming. Look, it would be a reasonable thing to do when you're making a film that you would title it now and then and the segments would would have something really to do with one another right <laughs> that they would comment on each other yeah. and here they literally do not but we can we can save that for when we discuss the ending of the film because right. once the film goes then 
we don't see the now until the end of the movie. Right? Or really hear it. There's like some narration. Well, but, yes. Yeah. And that's one thing the films both do have in common is yeah. the use of voiceover. The key difference being that now and then is narrated by the Demi Moore character, uh, who was also a producer on the film. Uh, she's the adult Samantha, who's this sort of goth writer who chain smokes Marlboros and is yeah. very existential. <laughs> and Right, sci-fi. Novels. Yeah, she writes sci-fi novels, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it is kind of implied that she is writing the film that we're watching, essentially. Mm-hmm. Through her voiceover, it's as if she was writing, like, this summer of, of her childhood yeah. as a novel. And it's her voiceover. Whereas, in Waiting to Exhale... It's a little more chaotic as we are treated to four different voiceovers that appear and reappear whenever the film wants yeah. them to, essentially. Truly. And they're not reflecting from the past. They're present tense kind of stream of consciousness often. Yeah, that's a really good point, right? And again, yeah. speaking to like Waiting to Exhale, not only said in the present, but yeah, the voiceover being in present tense, much different feeling than the sort of reminiscing going on yeah. uh, in in Now and Then. The narration in Now and Then and having Demi Moore as the sci-fi author reflecting on it all does seem to point to the fact that the Now sequence in general seems to purely exist so the film can be packaged as like a stand-by-me for young women. Sure. Right? Because it's the same frame narrative in terms of in Stand By Me, we've got the adult who is like the Stephen King type character who's right. writing his past. He's he's narrating the film and it's also the book that he's literally typing on his computer of his memories of childhood. And it seems like we only have the now s- sequence essentially to make it marketable as a a young woman stand by me. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the whole then is so drenched in nostalgia. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, it would almost feel out of place to not have that perspective of a reflection on it. Like, inherently in every one of those scenes, it feels like an idealized memory. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, but uh, like I said, shocking that like, the people whose names brought most of the audience to the movie only probably spent a few days working on it, whereas the young women who are doing all of the heavy lifting and I think doing, like, a remarkable job are second build almost, you know? Right, and they're the ones clearly putting in the hours. (laughs) Right, exactly. And three of whom are, you know, still working to this day. Yeah, and as Kyle uh, pointed out, 20 minutes into the movie, the woman who plays young Chrissy uh, died of a heroin overdose. So I was thinking about that the entire movie because I was like 20 minutes in when Kyle was like, oh, she's dead. Holy moly. So Thomas Wolfe once said, you can't go home again. Well, that's great for old Tom. But he wasn't a chick who made a pact with her friends when she was 12 to get together whenever any one of them needed each other. So here I am driving back to my childhood home in Indiana, a place I can tell you I never wanted to see again. Leslie Linkagladder, in addition to Twin Peaks, um, has credits on Freaks and Geeks, Law and Order, OC, West Wing, ER, Mad Men, 
justified. Yeah, those are all the shows that She's have ever been made. I'm telling you, all the shows. And and there's even more. I mean, this is just this is just a brief list. And some of them she'll only do one episode, but And she's currently the president of the Directors Guild of America. She is the 2021 president. A total legend. You know, as you both know, so many directors in her position before her and since um men and women who have had films of like you said, that didn't kind of match the the ultra high expectations of the Hollywood machine, then transitioned into just the the world of 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 television direction. I mean, such a such a high turnaround. So many of these great directors of the late eighties and nineties working in television throughout the aughts into now, and so you really see this kind of seasoned approach. It's it's I, often very easy photographically um, and formally, but it's just, Bright. it's by the numbers. Yeah, uh, very much so. It's, it's a very workman-like production. Yes, classic. You know, we were talking about the fact that both of these films have um, rather notable and successful soundtracks. This really does feel like soundtrack cinema. Yes. Both as a nostalgia piece, right? Um, yeah. But then also it has that very clean, bright 90s look as it's, you know, fooling around in the 70s. It was funny how, you know, one of the funny things on the gauntlet is we keep finding ourselves trapped in 1974. And when they're in the diner at one scene in Now and Then, and there's that, you know, the yellow floral wallpaper, the first thing I thought of was the last time I saw this was in Deadly Weapons with Chesty Morgan. And uh, right. let me just say the um, the wallpaper was much dirtier in yeah. that. And I think that that's a key to the visual look of this film as we were talking about how clean and workmanlike it is. Um, yeah. It's not a dirty 70s. It's not no. a booze-soaked brown 70s. It is a poppy, colorful, technicolor 70s from yeah. the 90s, really. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, the quote-unquote homeless Vietnam vet is just a kind of slightly <laughs> disheveled Brendan Fraser with a little bit of a five o'clock shadow. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, the least believable veteran I've ever seen yeah, in a maybe. film, I think. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I think... You know, speaking to that kind of like TV style, I mean, I, even though it's kind of like a concentrated narrative, like, oh, this one summer where all this stuff happened, the plot is loose, right? It's not really a driving mm -hmm. plot. The plot even kind of changes. It felt very episodic yeah. to me in a, in a TV way, right? Because yeah. ultimately the film is reflecting on these girls' like home lives and how that's affecting them and shaping them and then bouncing that off of the friends. Friendship, uh, but it feels very episodic because as the flashback starts, they're like, this summer we're going to get a tree house, right? right? Yeah. And it's this tree house that you see in the present day. And so you think this movie is going to be about them making money to get the tree house. It is absolutely not about that at all. No. The treehouse is a thing like that they idealize and dream about and they get in the end. But like we don't see them get any goddamn money, you know, because they get sidetracked by their ghostly quest. And there's like one other sequence where they're painting a garage <laughs> right. to like raise a little bit of money. Yeah, I guess the odd jobs are implied, but it really obviously this is about the good times I had with with my girls. They're not going to be writing all these passages of like and then we painted the fence for eight hours. Hours, right. you know, right. but maybe they should have, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely at times where I was hoping it would return to them raising money for the treehouse. 
I, I did read there were a few other sequences that were cut from the film, like they were raising money at like a carnival. And that's just pure pals stuff to me. Right. I did, you know, like watching them paint the garage in the middle of the film, I was reminded all of a sudden that they were raising money. And I right. was thinking about like, oh, I would have liked to have maybe seen a little bit more of this instead of the seance mystery, which didn't seem to really get its get its claws in me. I do want to clarify, though, as we're talking about, you know, these episodic moments and it like kind of the way it relates to television i don't want to be knocking the film for that i don't want to sound like roger ebert in the 90s who called this thing uh just like a bad sitcom um (laughs) because i don't think it is but i do think that the television element is there in the aesthetics of the film but i don't think it's it's taking away from it well i think like even it goes back to your introduction because like beyond stand by me i think it is influenced by other stephen king stories in in a variety of different ways, narratively and even kind of graphically sometimes. Like, even just, like, the storm drain and the white, or the yellow raincoat, Mm -hmm. and this small-town mystery. Well, I think bringing up King is a really good thing to bring up, because I was already going to bring up, like, what both of these films also have in common, which is their, like, middle-class bourgeois kind of tales, right? In totally different directions. But yes, this is, you know, a total, like, middle-class fantasy dream of 1970. But again, though, right, there's a lot of darkness with the families and and the personal sort of uh, things that they have to go up against. And I think, yeah, I think the way... The, f- the film ultimately explores that is very King-like, right? Yeah. Because Tangents. it's like looking to the town, it's like these external forces that are pressing on them. Because one thing I found interesting in, in both films is that there's no real strife amongst the pals. Yeah. Both films, everyone is friends and they just like support each other and help each other out. They may have a disagreement here and there, especially in now and then, right? We've got 12-year-old girls like pranking each other right. uh, and punching each other or whatever. But like the conflict of the film is not amongst themselves. Yeah, there's not like a major falling out at any point in either of these films where two of the figures like are no longer friends or there's like bad blood between them that eventually gets resolved by the end. It is really, they are like deep into their friendships. Nothing is going to upset it. And, you know, they may have internal squabbles, but really it's, the friendship is a given. It's not this idea of a woman's friendship is this fragile thing that is at stake. Right. Well, and that's something we were talking about before, because when I, you know, pitched the topic, there's so many movies came to mind, like immediately I started writing down my list, but there are so many types of stories about friendship that you could have picked in both of these compatibly are not about the beginnings of friendships are not about the endings of friendships. They're about these, in both cases, these sets of long-term established friendships that are established before the end of the film and are... Long-term support systems, even. Right. I mean, you they say. you even though you only spend a year in the life of the women in Waiting to Exhale, you feel as if they've been friends forever. And I think there's direct in, in, implication of some of them having been friends forever, but you feel that that history. Both of the movies are exploring friendship by way of the characters realizing their own individuality. And and I think ultimately that's what both films are about, as, for as many ways as they're different. That's like 
the dominant similarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely have have that in common, right? Because again, they're very different points in people's lives, right? Twelve years old versus right being a a thirty something single black woman in Phoenix. But ultimately, yeah, it's about them finding themselves, right? And and being an individual. I think it's interesting to me that Waiting to Exhale is a, a, a big 20th century Fox film that almost has like a more, you know, radical solution to their problems than Now and Then, which is actually a new line film. And I, I want all of our listeners to just look at the 1995 new line lineup and see what kind of films that Now and Then came out with that year on the slate. I was just cracking up before we recorded just looking at that list. Too long to name, but uh, Seven is one of the same, the films that New Line made <laughs> at the same time. It does have a New Line sheen. I think we were like Ooh, talking around yes. that the whole time when we were talking about the, the look of this film the it looks like 70s. final destination it certainly does it looks like final destination <laughs> falling from that roof while they're watching the drive-in horrible death um. <laughs> but yeah i mean to, i guess to talk a little bit about the now in now and then in the beginning of the film as we're talking about how these films are both about established friendships and support groups the the impetus for the now sequence that kickstarts the story is that they all made a pact when they were 12 that they would be there for each other. And that's why I I really did like the beginning and kept hoping it would return to the now and flesh that out a little bit more. Because when they were all hanging out, when it's Demi Moore, Melanie Griffith, Rosie O'Donnell, they're just like sitting on the swings thinking about the past. And they're just like, oh, we we, we promised we would all be here for each other. But also, like, I don't know, I just wish I saw you guys more. You know, I I wish we we hung out more often or just like, I just, I found it all surprisingly moving. I thought like, oh, all these adult friends that haven't seen each other for so long, getting back together, sitting on the swings, thinking about the past. And that was the nostalgia that hit me a lot harder than the um, sort of straining for 70s nostalgia in the 90s. Um, That to me became almost Brechtian, like this distancing effect that I was fascinated by the 90s view of 20 years ago in the 70s. You know, it's it's maybe pointless to talk about things we wish the film did um scenes that don't exist but sure. it it would have been nice to keep returning to the now and getting more of that but that's you know that's what you get when you hire those movie stars who you know yeah while they're only there <laughs> for a couple of days they they can bring it you know you just think they could have come up with a better thing for all of them to do because right. they're all coming back to indiana because chrissy is having a baby and mm-hmm. that's it right and i mean that's the thing is they they've all left except chrissy right teeny actually became a movie star and she became melanie griffith she became Mel- <laughs> she literally became melanie griffith and then christina ricci became rosie o'donnell she's like a gynecologist yeah she became a gynecologist samantha became demi moore an established sci-fi writer who is still kind of grappling with her own internal demons but it is a, it is a homecoming right that tom wolf quote is such a fucking groaner dude oh my god <laughs> when she said it again in the end you can run from the disappointments you're trying to forget but it's only when you embrace your past that you truly move forward maybe thomas wolf never got to go home again but i found my way there 
And I'm glad I did. I really turned on this film in the last, like, 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Like, when she started laying it on thick with, like, the summarizing voiceover and, yeah. like, the the platitudes just start, like, pouring on. And then they cut back to the present and they shoot a hospital scene so <laughs> shitty that there's not a single fucking person in a shot who isn't one of the stars, it's just might as well have been shot in my fucking bedroom. Yeah. That's what the hospital set looks like. And this is all while Demi Moore's, like, the executive producer uh, in voiceover going like, Tom Wolfe said you can never go home again, but (laughs) we all became friends and free because I learned all this stuff. (laughs) Like, just fuck off with that crap because, honestly, some of the stuff in this movie is really good. Like the playful Mm -hmm. friendship stuff, the fun summer stuff, that to me was all very earnest. The performances by the kids are like really good. Thora Birch, Christina Ricci, like these are good child actors and they really do like have good chemistry together. And I think that's when the film is strongest, right? When they're riding bikes and there's a lot of bike riding and I like that. Um, Lots They're, of good bike riding. Yeah, I love when they try to see the, the Wormer Boys' penises at the classic. river, right? That's, like, so, so classic. classic. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the worms because <laughs> they are, like, this source of terror in the neighborhood, right? All these, like, these naughty boys riding around on their bicycles. Blonde boys at that. Blonde boys riding around on their bicycles throwing water balloons and other things, just pranking everybody, causing a ruckus. And the first thing I thought of when the, the Wormers rode up was... Andy was a wormer. <laughs> no doubt. We can all agree. That is a great scene when they are they're hanging out in the woods and they spot all these young wormers skinny dipping in a, in a Indiana lake and they decide to steal all their clothes and make a big show of it and then they chase after them. You've got comic visual gags of, you know, the boys carrying big farm buckets that they find littered around the ground covering their crotches <laughs> as they very wetly like run across the the fields. There's another fantastic uh, aside scene where uh, Christina Ricci's character goes to play softball uh, and then gets into a fist fight and like beats the shit out of another kid like that's a very funny scene as well with the way all the children are like screaming fight you know when she starts it with him like I was cracking up at that stuff the camera is often very active oh yeah there's like a lot of crane shots and like constantly floating Uh, yeah the cinematography is sun kissed and floating around that's very true Mm -hmm. my favorite sequence in the film, one that you both talked about is um, the sequence where they go to Greenfield to check the archives and get some information about Dear Johnny. And it's it, it's filled with those biking sequences where they're biking often in long lens, long takes, and they're singing songs with the, with the handheld radio that they have. And it's moments of, of really kind of genuine, candid, spontaneous performance in an otherwise sometimes like rigid and stodgy form and i think narratively i think it's great that the scene with the nude boys takes place there but i was thinking about it logistically like 
why are the boys on the way to Greenfield? Well, that's the thing. If it was actually shot in Indiana, I feel like that element would have been a little clearer. Like, yeah. they're all, you know, getting restless in their middle-class suburban community. They're just trying to ride out. You know, I mean, I, I used to do that, right? We would just, like, see how far we could go, you know? And then, sure. um, yeah. I mean, you know, they knew the lake was there, but maybe they were on their way to that. It's the famed skinny-dipping spot. There was a scene in that sequence that I wanted to bring up, though, because it was very personal to me when... Um, they, I believe it was when they were divvying up the, the cans of Coke and a bird flew by and pooped and they were all looking for the poop and yeah. it wound up in Chrissy's hair. Oh, yeah. And I had a similar experience in my youth. You got shat on? I got pooped on by a bird. Yeah. Have either of you got pooped on by a bird? Not directly, but when I was in college, I took avian biology, which was a course yeah. where we would just go play at the lily pool and help tag birds for our professor. Uh, and we would catch them in, in nets and, and clip their toenails and pluck a feather and tag them and send them on their way. And dear friend of the podcast, Scott Skillings, was in that class with me and he got shit on by a blackbird uh, in Good. class. He deserves so it. I saw that. That was real. It wasn't on his head. Was okay. this on your head? Oh, you yeah. got shat on? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was, we were all sitting down to dinner at an outdoor restaurant, and for whatever reason, I was at this age, I don't remember when it was, but I was infatuated with the idea of surf and turf, and so I was so <laughs> excited to be a, to be at this restaurant and be able to order surf and turf, and literally, like, just as the food was served, I got pooped oh. on, like, center of my head, and I had to, like, go back to the room, clean up, come back waiting longer for my surf and turf going back to like the sometimes effortlessness of the cinematography i just noticed and and would clock and write down in my notes as often as i could when the sun was was backlighting the characters from opposing directions anytime they're outside during the day they're backlit by the sun and it's just backlighting anyone no matter what direction they are standing <laughs> My first note was wig cinema. And I, I just think even if this isn't like a part of that. Hey, look, Forrest Gump is wig cinema. Totally. So is this. Yeah, yeah sure. You know. Absolutely. And and I think, yeah, this this has those qualities. Specifically that 90s, looking back on 1970, um, the vibe is very similar in Forrest Gump as it is in Now and Then. Yeah, for sure, because everything should be brown and disgusting, and it's not really. But I do think it, it it excels in showing the colorful excess of these, like, drab suburban lives, you know? Because mm -hmm. the interiors of the of the kids' houses are like, they're like Todd Haynes-level yeah. production yeah. design yes. in terms of the color and the items and uh, just the way they're, they're sort of situating these characters in this, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, colorful pop past or whatever to go along with the, the bouncy soundtrack. There's like the good gag, right, where Samantha sees her mom and says, uh, oh, she just started dressing like Nancy Sinatra for no yeah. reason. Right. Uh, I mean, it's because she's getting divorced. Right. That's why she started dressing like Nancy yeah. Sinatra. But uh, yeah, those excesses of the late 60s, early 70s uh, are there, you know. It, it's soft and glowing most of the time. Yeah. It's not, uh, it doesn't look like the interiors of Taking of Pelham. It's a film riddled with things that could be read as inauthentic, but I don't want to, we shouldn't get distracted from 
the things that this film does excel in, and that is like the authenticity of like young womanhood and girlhood. Yes, certainly. Because it's it's peppered with so many wonderful small scenes of just them growing up as young women and dealing with things that you certainly would never see in Stand By Me. Right. Taking Cosmo quizzes and doing yes. seances. Right. You know? Exactly. Talking about the differences between filling balloons with jello or vanilla pudding in terms of stuffing their bras. And then on the reverse of that, Christina Ricci, who is, um, you know, very frustrated that she is growing breasts and she's trying to tape them. And I, you know, another thing that kind of haunts the film especially having Rosie O'Donnell as the elder version of Christina Ricci is that I you know I did read and it feels very obvious in the film itself that that character was written as a lesbian and that was something that was supposed to be a given throughout but because the studio was frustrated by that they added in like an overdubbed line in the first now sequence which even while watching I thought was completely out of place and felt weird and it was just a reference to the fact that she has a boyfriend yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Well, but if you look there, there's like a little codified thing, you know, I am assuming it's by design, but I noticed it in the first now sequence. When you meet the women, they each have a very representative costume that kind of defines what you will come to know about their characters as the movie progresses. The first person you see is Demi Moore and she's wearing like an iconic all black suit with pants something that's commented on by the other women, contrasting with that Melanie Griffith arrives in a white dress, uh, in a limo. Rita Wilson is in a, in a, like, a flowery pink dress. Finally, Rosie O'Donnell is introduced wearing a blue uh, jean shirt. And so, you know, read into that what you will. I think it's just blue, pink, black, white, there you go. Rita Wilson feels like she's still in the 70s, which I thought was an interesting touch yeah, for the now she sequence. Never left, you know, you she never left. She never left. There does seem to be a considerable amount of tension with who they were and who they've become, but again, the film doesn't explore the, the now in any meaningful way. Um, I do want to shout out, you know, a couple of the sort of like one-off scene stealers in this film. Brendan Fraser was was brought up earlier as, uh, you know, a pretty big scene. But I want to I want to highlight the great work done here, specifically by Cloris Leachman, but also by Hank Azaria in a in a truly kind of disgusting turn uh, as this like typical. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's such a perfect Azaria role. He comes in as, you know, the, the, the divorced mother has like a new boyfriend and she wants, you know, the, the kids to meet him and brings him to dinner. And it's it's Hank Azaria at his like sleaziest 70s. Like, mm-hmm. and he's kind of innocuous, but like he's got a huge collar yeah. and greasy hair, something in his teeth. There was a weird reveal in that scene as he's building up, trying to create this friendship as if, you know, they were going to announce their engagement or something. Right. Hank Azaria is mentioning, oh, have you ever been to the Smithsonian? Like, oh, I'll take you there. Why don't we plan a trip to D.C. this summer? And the mom's like, oh, that's a great idea. And then the gag in that scene is Samantha notes to him that he's got food in his teeth and he freaks out and he accidentally spills his wine all over himself in the chair. And when the mom goes to grab new clothes, Hank Azaria says, oh, sorry, you know, first date jitters. Right. I was like, first date? Man, like, you know, this is all pretty raw and like these kids are already uncomfortable enough as it is with dad leaving. And it's like, oh, we're introducing you on a first date to Hank Azaria, who's already making summer trip plans with all of us. 
for this summer. I mean, unless he was referring to, like, his first encounter with Samantha as right. opposed to the mother. But nevertheless, there's additionally, yeah, uh, Samantha's grandmother is played by Cloris Leachman. And she has basically two scenes. One where she's outside their house screaming at them <laughs> as the, you know, the recently divorced mother <laughs> and her two children hide under the dinner table. Because she just doesn't want to deal with, you know, her mother right now. But later, when the... Uh, four main girls are investigating uh, the the you know mysterious death in the past. They go to seek answers from grandmother Cloris, who has a bit of a gambling problem. Yeah, it's no revealed. She uh, she loves to play poker <laughs> and bingo and shuttles the girls out of her house because there's like some rowdy old ladies like honking because they're late to bingo. The bingo tournament. Yeah, I loved all that stuff, and especially too, they're like you know they're like oh my god. God, we need to like find out about this mystery and she's like oh yeah they were murdered i gotta go to bingo see you later <laughs> uh, and it's just like yeah really like undercutting this reveal that should be dramatic where like part of the truth that they're looking for is revealed undercut by her like boisterous humor and then she puts on her little toupee uh on top of her hair oh my god yeah she's really funny she's vacuuming up all the crumbs with her yeah. like non-electric vacuum yeah, cleaner in, like real time yeah and she's like drink up girls as she's grabbing the glasses out of their hands to put back on the tray to wrap everything up for a second i thought she served them gin and tonics but kyle was like i think the lemonade's just really tart because that's right. another gag where like she serves them just like the most potent lemonade that's ever existed <laughs> but i was like they were reacting like yeah. it was like a cup of gin yeah. you know <laughs> i had the same thought yeah and then it's a funny mirroring of them like you know sharing cigarettes with uh with yes. brendan Fraser as the returned vietnam vet Ah, man, I wish the camera like just like latched itself on the back of that car that Cloris Leachman got in. I really wanted to watch the bingo tournament. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other movie I could have followed into there for sure. The Brendan Fraser scene is interesting because it's like so, yeah, it is very much this like pathetic 90s like look back on on the vietnam era mm -hmm. the girls are like we're winning right and he's very clearly yeah he's brendan fraser he's like the hippie soldier right the vet the disillusioned veteran and basically it's like one of the really only moments in the film that besides the ending where it's like this is a life lesson moment you know and mm -hmm. it's a shame because i think he's great you know he's very natural he's very like cool with the girls uh as a performer but yeah it just ends up being this kind of like extremely overly obvious thing where the takeaway is we shouldn't trust our parents it has that 90s energy of looking back on the 70s and saying like glad we learned the lesson here right. and glad that yes. everything is okay now yes so simple yeah 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 speaking of other movies i wanted to enter into you know we don't get a lot with teenies parents and that's again you know she wants to be this actress and she's got these absentee country club parents and there's actually like a crane shot where it cranes up to like her bedroom you know where she's like alone and isolated but we see that like the parents are having like a booze soaked like you know key party yeah. or whatever yeah. like whatever's going on there you know like the ice storm is going on uh in the, the floor below yeah. of where like the main narrative sure. is, is actually happening <laughs> you know right she's the one who is reading from cosmo and and kind of like orating the mm -hmm. questionnaire and so yeah i think that's one of like many 
sincere moments where the movie like allows a, a spark of something genuine um, in the midst of the other things that are so contrived, like the mm-hmm. just the central story of Dear Johnny or, or whatever else. Yeah. Speaking to that, that quality of those moments of authenticity, I loved one of the first scenes with the parents where Chrissy is talking to her mother about sex. And I thought Chrissy's mom's re- reaction was so funny. Bonnie Hunt, another great cameo. Yeah. When sex is brought up, she's like, it's, it's very scary for mommy. Yeah, you know, it's like going, boo, ah, yes. that's what sex is. Yeah, I wrote that down too. <laughs> I love that. But it felt very real. The scenes with the parents, I think, are very good at showing how each young girl's relationship to her parents really colors their personalities and their own individual issues and just things they have to deal with in life. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it brings, you know, uh, I don't want to say conflict, but they do all see the world differently and they're all very different people. And so it does a good job of that too, of having these like bouncy conversations where they're all on four different wavelengths. And it's like Mm -hmm. in one sense, like a scale of, yeah, sort of naivete to, you know, the more cynical sort of like Christina Ricci or or Samantha, right? That character uh, being maybe a little more world wise or world weary, but like, no, they all bring something, you know, different to the table. And so like when they're doing things like, yeah, the seance or when they go to see Janine Garofalo, the fortune teller, (laughs) speaking of wig cinema, yeah, Janine Garofalo is the waitress at the diner and also a, a fortune teller that they go see in a very kind of droll, deadpan performance as she, like, mm-hmm. you know, does tarot to them. Extremely great gag when Janine Garofalo says she's feeling the spirit energy and Chrissy says, yeah, for 10 treehouse dollars, I'd be feeling it too. <laughs> I mean, so many great lines when, when she invites them in. She says, why are you here? And then they say, like, we want to find out about so-and-so. And she says, I know. <laughs> I think we should, you know, mention to right, uh, the soundtrack, obviously full of 1969, 1970 bangers. You know, we get the Archies, the Jackson 5, Stevie Wonder, the Monkees. We also get... Greatest hits. Uh, yeah, it's very, it is very much mm-hmm. greatest hits sort of like compilation. Uh, we're also treated to some visual media as well as it's revealed all of the sudden halfway through the movie that they live like right next to a drive-in movie theater and it's only in one shot and we see uh, them sitting on the roof and Love Story is playing. Yeah, I can't believe how late that gets revealed because you'd think that would have been some they would have been hanging out watching that stuff all the time it would have been such a funny motif every other scene should be them smoking cigarettes on the roof of her house watching the drive-in if that was actually the setup and you were 12 you would be doing that every day yeah absolutely i mean consider how late in the movie the kind of like chain of events of them contacting one another in the middle of the night is yeah like when they mm-hmm. when they have all of these signals from one house to the next like uh, i think those are the things that have this this king quality um this kind of like magical ideal of the small town youth like a purity before america changed before america yeah grew up well um, and that's something i also i would i did want to bring up about this vision of america yeah i'm not saying there aren't towns in indiana that are only white people it really came to me in the last act when we return to the present 
and there's one black character in the movie and he's the limo driver for Melanie Griffith. And he, uh, when Chrissy is going to go have her baby, it's like this comical scene where they're like, we got to get her to the hospital. And they just berate the black limo driver and kick him out of the limo and take the limo. And he's like, I'll get you there. Just let me know. Yeah. He, he's just like, I, this is my, I'm the driver. Like I'll just take you to the hospital and they kick him out and just like leave him on the road and drive away in his limo. And I'm just thinking like, there are some dark things they didn't think about when they made this film. Yeah. It was supposed to be a girl power moment and it comes off as like really cruel. Yeah. yeah. Just four entitled white women that yes. grew up in a planned suburban development with no diversity at all. I was like, holy shit, this is, yeah, a real <laughs> really stepped in a puddle moment. Like, what were they thinking with that? I mean, the thing was shot in Georgia. So if they're designing this community and there's no black extras, I mean, it was on purpose. Of course. And it's and it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've already mentioned several of the moments that are really, I think, give the movie its lasting strength, but I also feel mm -hmm. like overall... There is like a a simplicity to the girl power nature of this at times, like more often than not. What the movie is striving to get at in terms of satisfying the expectations of the boys version of this story while also making it very clearly different because it's about women. You know, I don't think any of us would, would say this movie goes as far as where our other movie does or, you know, other movies about childhood go. Mm -hmm. I also think it has this quality that's present both in the types of films that are riffing on the nature of Stephen King's work and specifically the nostalgic quality of his work and then also just 90s films about childhood in general or just like studio productions about childhood. This quality was most clear to me in the scene you brought up, Alex, where they have like their way of communicating with the between the houses with like the ropes and the little bells and their system. Yeah. These films that are designed to be these dopamine rushes of also suggesting like you don't you just wish you had this right. like I bet you wish your friends were this cool or that you like you loved your friends this much that you had like a whole <laughs> yeah. society and culture developed amongst the four of you. To me, it almost feels like mocking to the audience, sure. even though it's designed to just make you f feel good. Well, you know, I do think there's there's something to it in its construction that they're specifically like 12 years old, right? Because that means you're mm -hmm. you're still friends with people who you lived near, people who your parents yeah. were friends with. Like you haven't really probably made too many kind of like friendship decisions on your own maybe at that yeah. age versus like what happens when you go to high school and you really start to like get splintered off into uh, different mm -hmm. groups and things like that. But you're right as well, <laughs> you know? Well, what I think it comes down to and what would be one of the bigger differences between the movies is that this is by and large targeted for a younger audience. This yes. is a kid's movie. This is made... Mm -hmm targeting people who are who are primarily looking at it as the then is what I'm going through now right. and I hope I get to grow up and my friend is Demi Moore when I texted my sister and told her we were watching uh now and then she well first of all she was 12 years old when this film came out uh, which is the exact oh age of the girls in the movie she said yeah i have the entire film memorized and if you want my cd soundtrack uh you can borrow it you know and i do remember like listening to the archies 
on the Now and Then soundtrack. I mean, I'd seen this film growing up because I had an older sister in the 90s. Has she shown it to your niece, Margot, yet? <laughs> not yet, I think. Well, uh, how old is she? She's like seven. seven? Yeah, yeah, not old yeah. enough yet. I think that's going to be a really special moment. And then them driving in the car, listening to the CD and being like, you remember this part? Yeah, that'll be amazing. <laughs> One other thing I read about the film that I thought I'd bring up just because it was interesting was they were planning on doing like a TV movie version of it in the in the 2000s. And the idea would be that the now was the 2000s and that the then would be in the 90s. And Leslie Linka-Gladder said she decided not to work on it because she thought, well, taking it out of the 70s removes what's so special about the film. And I just completely disagree. I was like, well, yeah, if you were going to make a new one, yeah, they, they, that's exactly what it should be. The yeah. now should be now, and the then should be the 90s. Yeah. That sounds great. Because the then would still be pre-9-11. You could still just do like, it was the 90s. We had no cares in the fucking world, right. you know? You could do it, repeat it forever. This is curious why she thought that the, the fact that it was in the 70s was the key to the film. Because well, you would have had to use Soundgarden instead of the Almond <laughs> Brothers. You're like, oh shit, we got to use My Bloody Valentine instead of The Temptations. Movie ruins. You know? I know, but that's the thing. It, it felt like this boomer take to yeah, me. Yeah, totally. It has to be the 70s. Well, you could have like, got Babyface Edmonds to fucking score the movie, you know? I, so there is, it's a soundtrack cinema, but God, I, I don't know. I guess I personally just find 90s studio, like, orchestral music to be so... It's bad. Yeah. It's post-John Williams. Right. It's like the worst shit yeah, ever, dude. Geez. It's so cheese. Yeah. I'm, like, allergic to orchestral scores because of the 90s. Like, when I think right. about movies growing up and all that bullshit I watched, I think about, like, Mickey Mousey orchestral scores and, and Will like, look, Williams did good work, but, like, culpable, yeah. you know? Like, the whole post-70s well, yeah. scoring. Just like industry. Zimmer now. Oh, get it out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the syrupy garbage. Like, which is interesting because in Waiting to Exhale, there is an orchestral score, but it's being done by a guy who's never scored a film before so i had watched now and then after watching waiting to exhale when we started now and then and it was announced that it was in indiana i thought like oh how fun regional cinema again we're in indiana but it it was so clear pretty quickly that it couldn't have been indiana and then it was like most evident in the cemetery sequence where it's just like clearly a southern cemetery i'm like those trees they don't have those trees in indiana but let me tell you waiting to exhale that's regional cinema and and proud of it and it's flaunting it in its opening images and i think that the opening images of waiting to exhale are are really beautiful and fun i mean just like forrest whitaker starting his film with a black woman driving around in a convertible in Monument Valley is just such a like putting his foot down moment of you know like these spaces don't just belong to John Wayne and the film immediately had me on its wavelength with that where it was just like waiting to exhale here we are another big you know like a larger budget studio production but it's like here we are driving through familiar territory and we're taking it back you're you're about to see a new a new story and a very regionally specific story Absolutely. It's, yeah, you know, there's a long tradition of, you know, people parading through Monument Valley in a post-John Ford universe, right? Whether it's, you know, the stoned bikers of Easy Rider, you know, going through Monument Valley to, yes, here, now, Whitney 
cruising top down we get like new year's eve radio man silky smooth voiceover and i guess you know one thing i wanted to 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 start with in in light of that monument valley opening is this is a stunning looking film you know like it is gorgeous it works with the spaces and the landscapes it's got a very warm glow to it. Um, it's, you know, it, both films have, have warm glows to them, but they're very different kinds of, of glows. And I think it's also the difference of like natural versus unnatural orange lighting that's all over this movie. But also the, yeah, the big skies of Arizona are put to great emotional use here. Honestly, the cinematography in Waiting to Exhale feels like R&B. Yeah, very much. I like that. You know, very smooth, a lot of like contours. Right. And that's why, you know, I say it all the time, but, you know, us in the gauntlet, we love regional cinema. And this is just such a great way of like using a very familiar landscape in cinema, Uh, not specifically just Monument Valley, but Arizona in general. And then using it very musically like R&B and riffing on the spaces, you know, taking the big sky and using it for a very different emotional effect. You know, it's not about sweeping landscapes. It's about sweeping emotions. Well, I think the key difference here too is now and then is a coming of age film and waiting to exhale is a melodrama, right? And it is very upfront about that and like you said ryan it's like the the arizona landscape and sky serve to reinforce or you know counterpoint to these big melodramatic emotions and and subjectivity of the characters uh, Mm -hmm. as well yeah i think even beyond that beyond the the macro stuff there's like just the locations the the clay adobe houses the there's like that crazy shot early on where there's just like a woodpecker hammering away at a cactus in the foreground and like I think differently than now and then where you have this like very obviously contrived lighting scheme where it's always golden no matter when you are unless it's at night when it's just entirely blue and it's very (laughs) blue and it's only blue whereas there's a lot more variation here and uh, like I think the richness of the photography has has so much more nuance and really leans into the the melodrama. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up those Adobe houses. They they all got some some sweet digs in this movie. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. these are all women who are living it up. They have got very very nice Arizona homes. They have nice cars. They have nice stuff. Good um, sofas. Very good sofas. It's a very luxurious movie like most of the interactions especially between them all are in either like it's like the club or like living room spaces like sometimes their workspaces but when they're all together they're like sitting around on couches drinking coffee sitting on the floor leaning on the couches like glass tables yeah i think that's again you know this film is is like now and then in this kind of like middle class bourgeois setting right these people are all very well to do and obviously because it's for black women it's like almost a radical act in the context of a hollywood production but it's also Mm -hmm. i think you got to think about this film 
in the context of right 90s black cinema and all that that had been going on right and it's sort of like you know waiting to exhale is is the natural outgrowth of right the urban mm-hmm. hood cycle right it's like those films were very popular and they made a lot of money and so ultimately right they are, yeah, kind of like violent, quote unquote, like negative portrayals, perhaps, you know. Uh, and then we get Waiting to Exhale, yeah. which is like the feel good. Like these people are all successful. Yeah. They've got other problems. Right. You know, the problems that normally white people have in movies, yep. like boyfriends and divorces and this kind of like these universal things, right? So it's interesting just thinking about when this movie came out. I've got a list here of this is like the high point of the hood cycle, right? Like this cycle would basically die the next year, essentially. But 1995 saw Clockers, Dead Presidents, Devil in a Blue Dress, Friday, The Glass Shield, Higher Learning, Tales from the Hood, Waiting to Exhale, right? And one year later, you've got Don't Be a Menace. You've got the parody of the Hood film already yeah, in full swing, goodbye. right? You've got wow. Girl Six, Go Original Gangsters, Set It Off. That's basically it. That's basically, like, you know, the end. And we we can talk about what happened after this movie, because there was, I don't want to say a boom in production, but obviously movies like Eve's Bayou or How Stella Got Her Groove Back, like, those movies wouldn't have existed without Waiting to Exhale. But right. after Waiting to Exhale, like, the, the urban version of these films, like, completely vanished, yep. right? So it is this kind of really interesting historical kind of turning point in the, the, yeah. the context of Hollywood production as it relates to, you know... Uh, black cinema in the 90s because this film was very successful extremely yes. successful yeah right? I, I wrote down i think it was like budget 16 million it box office 82 million and beyond wow. that you know the way people talk about it like i remember it you know i was god i was 10 or whatever i remember it being a huge deal but trying to look up like some of the press about this film is people it, it was not just a successful movie it was a social phenomenon. It was a sociological event. It was like the kind of thing that every film producer wants to happen, where all of the mm-hmm. sudden one woman is bringing 20 other women to right. a screening, you know, and they're yelling at the screen and yeah. they're engaged. It's magic and they're, Yes, it's like Magic Mike. They're fucking talking to the screen, you know, like people couldn't stop taking their girlfriends to see waiting yeah. to exhale, you yeah. know? I just want to say that I had a great time this morning watching uh, a 30-minute episode, a truncated episode <laughs> of Oprah about the film featuring the main actors as well as uh, Terry McMillan, the writer of the book and uh, co-writer of the screenplay. Just the way that it was a show that was constantly on in the background of my life growing up, but looking at it now, seeing this primarily white woman audience with some men, very few, but some people of color just going ham over these stars and this movie. And literally the first thing that happens when Oprah walks out is, did you all like this movie? And everyone just roars. (laughs) The first thing I wrote down about the movie was about the opening narration where where Whitney Houston's character uh, is establishing like her character's goals and immediately financial success for all of them at the beginning of the movie is already a given. I think, you know, that and then the milieu, this upper middle class bourgeois, this chill lifestyle, this you've 
you're financially comfortable enough to worry about all of these other things, what should you be doing with your life, managing personal, financial, marital affairs? In so many of the other examples that you listed, success is life or death. And, you know, beyond the violence, like moment to moment, the drama that unfolds is constantly at such a heightened point of tension. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of similarity to those movies, too. Namely, in, like, the sense of there being an epic scale, even though, like, it's a pretty low-stakes movie. It's pretty chill. Like, not a ton of, you know of life-changing things happen, though, like, an accumulation of events results in a changing of their perspectives and on their ability to exhale at the end, but contrasting to the the format of now and then, which is one summer, this is one year, New Year's to New Year's, and, and yet you, like, so much happens. And because at least some of the main characters' central dramas are directly life-changing, like getting a divorce, There, there is this epic scale where, like, you are, are so focused on every point of the development of these, these changes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, again, I think it goes back to the musical analogy, right? It's like, this film doesn't have a plot. It has these notes yes. that it hits, mm-hmm. right? Each character is a note, and each character has these additional notes, these other characters and people that they're interacting with. Uh, and yes, it does build to an emotional climax, but it's not a plot-driven climax. It's not a plot-driven anything. We're like sliding in and out of these women's lives yeah. and their relationships and their perspectives. And there's never any like, we got to do this. We got to do that. No, they are simply living their lives. Things happen as things happen to people in life. Right. You go on dates, you get divorced, you meet people, you know, your son goes to Spain with up for people, whatever. You know, you got all kinds of things going on in your life. And that's, again, how this film feels narratively. And I think, you know, I I did see some of the the negative reception to this film uh, in the 90s of, yeah, this sort of like uh, even Rosenbaum, you know, slags it in his capsule. Right. He says, like, bring a lunch, you know, because it's just like (laughs) plotless. You know, and like, yeah, dude, it is. And it's good because it is just this. We're just following this emotion. And yeah, like there is a connective thread. It's about these women's relationships. Right. And then bouncing that off their friendship. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there's I mean, it's filled with so much richness. There's like all these motifs, like one of which I kept noting was just like the awareness of media and television in their lives and contemporary culture part of the voiceover at the beginning someone says like i could be at home watching dick clark yeah it's gloria yeah yeah, and then like (laughs) later on someone's watching nanny and the professor and and uh, they have the classic uh, sing-along to roberta flack in the car so you know both films have the four ladies doing a sing-along and i read that the sing-along in Waiting to Exhale was actually improvised. It so, feels uh, spontaneous. Yeah, just, again, you've got Whitney in yeah. the car. And and I guess another, like, interesting thing about this film is how balanced it is, Yeah. right? It doesn't privilege one woman over the other. Because no. even as we're ushered into the film through Savannah, the Whitney Houston character, 
it's not her film. It's everyone's film. And that also surprised me. You know, I'd seen bits and pieces of this on cable, but I don't think I'd ever actually watched it. And yeah, it's not about Whitney Houston. It's about all four of them equally mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, we were talking about this feels like music, but it, it, it's almost mathematical in how yeah. equally spread out it is amongst all the different women. One of the m- more interesting departure points between these two films is how much time we spend with each of them individually away from each other in waiting to exhale while now and then it's clearly it's all pals all the time i mean there's plenty of sequences of them on their own of course but you know waiting to exhale there are actually overall when you think about it i mean there are not as many scenes as i was expecting of the four of them together shooting the shit and hanging out but their presence is felt In the individual scenes, after we do see them together, we hear about how they relate to each other and the type of influences they have on each other. So even when we're with individual characters in the film, like, yeah, the presence of the pals is still there in the background. You can almost wonder, you know, if there's a scene with Gloria, she'll be thinking like, oh, what's what's Whitney Houston going to think about this? Or, you know, there's... I would also say that there is a reaffirmation of their friendship, you know, at the end, just like in Now and Then, where it it is a constant, but that doesn't mean that it's not changing, right? Their relationship Mm -hmm. together is also changing because the film opens on New Year's Eve and all the women have separate plans. And when the film concludes on New Year's Eve, they are all together, right? So even as a group, they've evolved just as the group in Now and Then has evolved where they're like, we should be better friends, you know? Like, I haven't seen you for 10 years. Like, we could be better friends. We're stronger now that we've, you know, remembered in that case or in the case of Waiting to Exhale, now that they've gone through all these trials and tribulations, right? Like, mm-hmm. even that group is is a dynamic thing. Like, yep. the film doesn't treat it as static. Like, the support is static and constant. Yeah. But all the things that happen make them right. all change. You know, the group changes. Well. Because even when they're not together, they're, they're talking about one another, they're concerned with one another. You get the sense that there are interactions even that you don't see that happen oh, yeah. in between the scenes that you do. Yeah. Or call each other with like Circean, you know, yeah. mirror dissolve split screen situations. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I do, again, like want to bring up the, the connection to melodrama because I honestly, like, I didn't expect to be going like Cirque in my mind all the the time and watching this, but I really did because it has that attention to surfaces, mirrors, societal elements that are getting these women down, you know, the pressures of heteronormativity or society or or whatever, right? You know, these these worlds they live in. Because I think, again, if we think about who they are, like Savannah, the Whitney Houston character, I almost wish there was more with her job as the TV producer, because that's like an interesting tidbit where she's left her, her like TV station because she wants to produce. She was a successful executive, but she wants to be creative. And again, the implication being she is a black woman, right? So she's got to take a pay cut and move to Phoenix just to get an opportunity to, as in the film, she's like, I produced a three-minute segment. So Bernadine, Bernie, played by Angela Bassett, right? She started the company that her husband runs and got cut out of it as she became or, like, pivoted to being a housewife. All that stuff's going on. I don't remember where I was going with any of this. Well, I got a place to take it. In honor of Andy, 
My second note is about an early scene with, I, I you'll have to remind me, but I believe it's the Whitney Houston character where she's looking in the mirror and you get all of these close-ups of pieces of her face, like, like the Godard movie and like her assessing herself both physically, but also like her concerns are never like about that. Well, she's Whitney Houston. Right. You exactly. know? <laughs> but you're right. Like I, I wrote down in that introduction to her, it's like a presentational style. We're getting these cut up like her hands, her earrings, you know, her lips her lipstick. Right. It is very, yeah, kind of like a much more lush, you know, yeah. Godard, a married woman, you know, opening or whatever. But yeah, there is all of this kind of like design and, and use of space and place that, again, all serves the emotion. Like one of the more exciting sequences, quote unquote, narratively towards the beginning and one that like was certainly talked about and, and clipped in the Oprah episode is the <laughs> the sequence where Bernie after her husband decides to ditch her at the party for his uh, mistress and then white tell her mistress, his white mistress, <laughs> she in a fury takes all of his clothes out of the closet, throws them all in his car and lights it on fire. And while most of the interactions are conversations, are dates, are arguments, this is a, a really active sequence that the camera really embellishes i think forest and and the team are like having a ball with this with placing the the experience of the audience through the camera in her point of view and and then just the 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 fire that rages i couldn't believe how close the car was to her home right. when she lit it on fire i was like if i was gonna do that i i would have like had it like at the end of the driveway or like sure. a little bit far it's a planned it's a nice community and in Arizona, but like it's Arizona, right. it's very spread out. It's not hard to find a spot like a right. little bit You're in from the your house to the, the the car might blow up. Well, as the firefighter said, it's a nice area. <laughs> that uh, was the thing, yeah. though. Like I feel like it, it was a, at a really nice point in the movie where it clarifies or defines the movie's uh, sense of humor. Where I was like, okay, mm -hmm. what kind of movie is this? Like it's it's pretty ridiculous. The camera's doing some zany things. It, it's got a lot of craft. Like it's not like too over the top. But then when you have the consequence of of the firemen arriving, it doesn't just cut away and act as if everything is fine. Like the firemen are showing up, knocking on the door, and being like, you can't do this. Like, well, there's a great line, right? Because they're like, you can only burn trash, you know, in, in right. your own yard. And she's like, it is trash. But yeah. I think to your point about the humor of this film, you know what comes immediately after the car burning? Is that the Wendell Pierce scene? The, yes, the scene with Wendell yeah. Pierce, which is one of the most explicitly funny scenes in the film. Uh, so Robin, the aforementioned like marketing executive who has uh, many boyfriends, she's kind of stuck. Uh, as a mistress to this this guy uh, she's like his mistress and always kind of like you know feels left out the classic like I'll leave my wife for you situation that's been going on forever so she also you know on the side like goes on all these dates trying to find the right man and one of the people she goes on a date with is uh, Michael her co-worker who is her 
chubby co-worker played by Wendell Pierce. And, and we don't even get a date with them. We just cut right to the bedroom. <laughs> so we go from Bernie, you know, lighting her husband's car on fire to like a, a half naked Wendell Pierce being just like this really over eager, nerdy, kind of awkward co-worker guy who's like clearly, you know, uh, you know, punching above his weight class on this date, yeah. right? You know, <laughs> they have this horrible, you know, sort of like sex and and sex scene, uh, but it does like turn like very tender and nice because like you know they like start back up again and like he does it the way she wants it you know in the oprah interview uh uh leela rashan is asked specifically about this scene and she says that it took two days to film just the sex scene alone yeah. and she said she she got <laughs> dropped on the bed a lot of times i like the idea that it took longer to shoot that sex scene than it took to shoot the now sequence in now 100 percent. Right. Yeah. i would bet all the money i have on that yeah. for sure <laughs> yeah so like again like bernie's divorce is really like the big rupture in the film right it's the most dramatic stuff and that's where we get you know court scenes uh, very short court scenes uh in her journey and i and i think it's obviously worth pointing out that this is the most emotional role or at least explicitly like she's having a breakdown basically right her husband left yeah. her for his white secretary uh she gave up everything to raise the kids even though she started the company i mean she is fucking pissed and that's really when the film's friendship stuff starts to come out because like i said you know in the beginning yeah they're friends they're tight but like at this moment in their lives they're busy right they've got jobs they've got boyfriends husbands to deal with and there's a wonderful moment where savannah and bernie like hang out uh, after you know she's getting her divorce right and they just hold hands with the desert in the background as they're just like sitting out on this porch this like dark blue sunset sky and that's really like when you know the pals shit started to emerge yeah. you know for me in my experience i started like highlighting pals moments in purple because <laughs> you know she needs support at that moment like right now right my favorite pals moment in the film is after like hanging out they're all lounging on the couch and like essentially lounging on top of each other smoking yeah. and that image to me captures the way it feels at the end of a gauntlet recording mm, yeah just <laughs> everyone lounging and smoking being like okay cool uh, yeah. <laughs> we did it you know that's that scene would be perfected one year later in the weed smoking scene and set it off when they plan to <laughs> yeah. rob a bank while smoking a J on an LA roof somewhere you know speaking of pa real good pals stuff one of my favorite shots in the whole movie and again I think speaks to this film's general expressiveness is there is a fixed shot on a Ferris wheel that Gloria and Bernie are riding and it is literally yeah. the same camera technique that like the French impressionists used in the early 1920s when yeah. you would like attach a camera to a carnival ride and it's yeah. this beautiful moment too that ends with uh, Bernie laughing uh, and turning to Gloria and saying but I finally got the answer just never get fucking married. I tried to keep a list of the various locations where we saw them together in groups because, like, 
the club, the yeah. Ferris wheel, the the salon, barber shop, the birthday party. There's like the ostrich race. The ostrich race, yeah, another Arizona <laughs> thing. I think yeah. even though there's like the stakes are never really heightened to to like uh, a a degree even that we see like in in now and then where like there's a ghost and there's a mystery that has to be solved and and souls or 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 lives are at stake. There's there's not a lot of repetition in this movie. Even mm -hmm. the the their individual like apartments. I didn't feel like I got like an intimate sense of like anyone in particular because we were constantly moving to different places, different environments, restaurants. You, I, I think it really reflected the sense of their lifestyles professionally and personally like that. That's why they're not always together because their lives are busy. They're filled with all of these things, friends, family, romance. They're on um, the go. To me, it, it felt as if it was a like now in my life a stronger sense of what what friendship means, what like adult friendship entails. Um, it's not like this kind of idealized youthful thing where you're always together all the time. You're the gang that has your own language. You are are people who know one another more intimately than other people that they interact with, and you are there if not in 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 body in spirit. Yeah, and and mm -hmm. the way that that affects the way we can make decisions, like you get the sense that if any of these women were not in each other's lives, they wouldn't have done the things that they did. Yeah, I think that's really perceptive, and it made me think. This is a bit silly, but these four women together, they would have. Um, eating Dr. T alive. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, no question. He is no match for these women. But I do think that's great. Again, all the decisions they're making are because of the friendships that they've developed and the way they've come to understand each other and gain their own independence amongst each other as a friend group, which is said very explicitly in Now and Then. Yeah. You know, we thought we were growing together, but we actually grew more independent. Yeah. That's what we learned from the summer. And it is that idea that friendships help you become more independent because they're helping you guide you on your way in becoming yourself. Right. Catching you when you fall, mm -hmm. etc. Another cameo that I believe is uncredited, just like Giancarlo Esposito, but I think who was really great in, I think it's just one scene or two, where uh, a Wesley Snipes uh, encounters Bernie drinking at a, a hotel bar, and he's a, a civil rights attorney. His wife is sick and dying, and they have a very kind of frank, intimate conversation punctuated by a little flirting, but not overt, not exactly, a pretty kind of nuts and bolts adult conversation about love and romance and marriage that results in them sleeping together, not having sex, but sleeping beside one another. Shoes right. on. She, right, yeah. That's um, a nice track back to where yeah. uh, it's like the next morning and we don't know. Oh, did they sleep together? And you see them on the bed. Okay, they got their clothes on and the camera tracks back and they got their fucking shoes on. Yeah. So you know there was no <laughs> hanky-panky. Yeah. They, they kept it real respectable-like. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think coming from the source material, which I haven't read, which I can only presume about, there are so many details to this that feel lived in, that feel as if uh, not necessarily direct experiences that Terry McMillan had, but, but perhaps stories that she had heard from her friends 
or relatives. Not all of which, but most of the sexual encounters kind of have that, just the way that they reveal some quirk about not men, but this one man, this one person that they encountered, whether it's the nerdy Wendell Pierce or whether it's like the guy who's growling. Lionel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who Savannah meets at the New Year's Eve party. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, look, we can just lay out some of the some of the guys here. McKelty Williamson plays Troy, uh, who dates Robin for a brief and volatile moment because he's like presumably a, a crackhead or an alcoholic uh, on the sly, but he's this kind of like boisterous guy. And we should introduce, of course, Gregory Hines, who also comes in later in the film, sort of he comes in at sort of like the halfway point as the neighbor to Gloria. Uh, and they spark up a friendship, and Gregory Hines' character, Marvin, is a widower uh, who, unlike most of the men in the film, seems to be a stand-up guy all yeah. the way around. He seems, seems Look, pretty and, decent, you know, yeah. I like, I like some of the other guys in the movie. They may not be the best boyfriends or, or anything like that, but there's some like humor and charm to the performances that are being given here. And then Gregory Hines comes in all sweet. You know, here's Marvin the next door neighbor uh, and they get close but also Whitney Savannah she's got unfinished business from <laughs> Colorado who comes into town in the form of returning gauntlet champion <laughs> Dennis Haysbert's last scene seducing Julian Ock. That's not what happens in that movie. Uh, last scene in Far From Heaven on this very podcast. But uh, Dennis Haysbert plays Kenneth, who is Savannah's on and off ex from Colorado, who, wouldn't you know it, is married and has promised her to leave his wife. So again, as we've talked about this film, like, musically right like this is what's going on yeah. you know it's like balancing all these different relationships everyone has one or two or more uh sort of things to contend with yeah it's funny when when i saw that dennis haysbert was in the movie i was like all right i gotta promise myself i'm not gonna make the all-state joke again because i made that joke in far from heaven however <laughs> <laughs> there's a shot in this film where savannah is literally being held in Dennis Haysbert's hands, <laughs> and the majority of the frame is Dennis Haysbert's yeah. hands. It can't be ignored, Savannah, for all of uh, Dennis Haysbert's character's own shortcomings. In that moment, she was in, in good hands. Those hand, the, the hands were not good, Ryan. God damn it. Did you watch <laughs> yeah. the movie? He sucked. Uh, here's the, I don't know. It looked like it felt good. No, this is a great... Maybe in the, if it feels good. <laughs> yeah, feels good, do it. I know. However, I think it's an interesting use of Dennis Haysbert because he comes in silky smooth. You know, he is a guy who presumably you could put your trust in, yeah. right? Which is why he would be recruited for a heist or for insurance ads, right? Or the, or the president, right? But again, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a great use of him here because he does have this kind of like innocence and sweetness to him and so when he comes into town you're ready to believe his earnestness you know the things that he says to savannah which is reinforced by savannah's mother who is like kenneth is a good man like he's gonna leave his wife he's the one for you and so the film does all this stuff to convince you like savannah's finally got it like that he's actually going to be the one, right? And it builds that up and then fucking just, like, demolishes it. Not that he does anything explicitly bad in so much as Savannah realizes 
she is still being played for a fool, right? So as she recognizes that, yeah, it shatters that, like, ideal Haysbert that's being presented. To me, that that resolves itself in in one of my favorite qualities of the movie, where, like, if Savannah is the main character, if you have to, like, define that, her conversation with her mother at the end her ultimate fears that she reveals at the end is that she doesn't want her daughter to to be like her to be alone to be an old woman alone and i think whitney houston does a great job like bearing the weight of that moment and like then offering it as this kind of really nice simple note that that leaves the movie with some finality well so like bernie's story is very like clear there's an ending there she gets the money but with savannah it's like this acceptance of no i don't need a man i can i can be me an independent woman without a man maybe that doesn't necessarily mean forever but for the time being that's okay you know now and then you end it ends and you 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 feel like everything's gonna be fine for the end of time like there's no there's no like indication of real life beyond the scope of that movie whereas here there's there's absolutely just like this palpable feeling of of this is one year of many and these these lives that we have that we have explored quite thoroughly will continue to live on and develop and and more changes are to come that's why Terry wrote another book. Yes, there's a sequel. There was so much there, you know? And there's the sequel novel that that was meant to go into production but but never kind of amounted to anything. And then more recently in 2020, I don't know if you looked this uh, up. Yeah. Our our favorite TV producer and director, Lee Daniels, one and only, was aiming to produce it with 20th as a television series. So it might still be in the works. Who knows? We might get an updated... R.I.P. Whitney. Yes. You know, one of my biggest regrets with this film, Marsh, when you were mentioning that you highlighted in your notes in purple all the times that there were pals moments, I really wish I kept track of how many times they exhaled. Because let me tell you, they weren't waiting. There was constant breathing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, like constant, like size, like, you know, after a huge, heavy scene, they would they would exhale. It'd be a full exhale. And I thought, like, yeah, I mean, good for them. They need it. Well, you got to understand they're they're always already waiting to exhale. You see, this is a perpetual thing, (laughs) because, in fact, you know, when Savannah discusses the titular exhale in voiceover uh, at the New Year's Eve party, it's not even that she's found a man. It's that she's exhaling because she's pretending she found a man, right? right? You know, so there are many reasons to exhale, Ryan. Of course. In the in the Oprah interview, when uh, Loretta Devine was was welcomed on stage, Oprah asked her, uh, "When when did you exhale?" And and Loretta's response was, uh, I still haven't. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Well, speaking of those exhaling moments, we should we should go over them because ultimately that's what's going to bring these, this friendship back into into focus and into scope as they're all dealing with their problems. Right. So as Sherman went over, Savannah rejects Kenneth and decides to focus on her career and be a strong, independent woman. Bernie has this magical, innocent night with James, the civil rights attorney, and the film concludes like that plot line by having 
her read a letter that he's written to her. Robin, in her storyline, rejects Russell, played by Leon, the hottest man who ever lived, <laughs> which is real heartbreaking. Yeah, she's got to reject. How could you reject Leon? Yeah, he's a jerk. Well, look, this guy <laughs> was on the Jamaican bobsled team. He's oh, in Madonna. He's me. in Madonna videos. She is pregnant by him, and she rejects him because, again, he's given her the same old excuses, right? So we have these three women who are all alone. At the end of the film, the the heartwarming finale does go to Gloria, the Loretta Divine character, who, uh, after having a bit of a tiff with Gregory Hines over uh, her son, so we end on that note of of Marvin and Gloria, Gregory Hines and Loretta Divine getting together. But in the letter that the Wesley Snipes character writes to Bernie, it's got basically like the theme of the movie in it, which is in Wesley Snipes' voice. Actually, Wesley Snipes gets a voiceover in this film as well when she reads the letter. <laughs> so he's actually the fifth uh, main cast member here. Uh, but he says, You know what inspiration is? It's someone who lets you know life will go on and something beautiful can be waiting somewhere somewhere when you least expect it right and that to me is yeah the emotional core of the movie that's the, the film's thesis on friendship right is someone who lets you know that life will go on right so that again back to the idea of this support system but also as we've been talking about the idea that yes like life is a continuing process it's flowing it's not time isn't gonna stop right uh and all this stuff is is ever changing well said um i want to talk about the crew yeah. um because it's a really interesting bunch in addition to terry mcmillan who wrote the book the script was co-written by ronald bass a hollywood screenwriter of uh, Rain Man, most notably others uh joy luck club my best friend's wedding what dreams may come so uh, such a hollywood hack i love yeah. it i yeah. mean it is kind of offensive on on the surface where you go yes. like you've got terry mcmillan the novelist you've got forrest directing and then it's right. like we got to bring in some white guy to tell us about structure right. you know to like yeah. shape this film uh but you know to to bass's credit like it doesn't appear that he got in the way of this film at all no. like it isn't overly shaped it isn't bent to a hollywood formula right. it actually defies like many aspects of of the hollywood uh, structure i feel like forrest is directing like within their povs the entire yeah, time right. and he's like much. doing everything he can yeah. uh to respect that point of view in a way that film is classical in that sense because it's yeah. like very motivated by oh, the characters yeah. but he's tying all of the shots and the style like to them yeah i mean i even made the joke to you marsh when i was done watching it i was like it was like slow cinema yeah like i couldn't believe because it feels like it's just like casually moving around and like you said alex all of these different locations all of these different spaces and it yeah it, it's just like hitting these different notes and it 
it, it it doesn't surprise me that it struggled critically at the time because you have to think about all these people going into it, even Rosenbaum looking at this thing and seeing like, okay, this had this big budget. It like at times very much looks like a studio production. Why doesn't it feel like one? Why isn't it conforming to how I understand studio filmmaking? And that's because, I mean, I think now with the, the benefit of hindsight looking at it, I mean, it's not surprising at all that it was a, such a social sensation because it's tapping into a completely different language that isn't typical right. for the like white director Hollywood production from the 90s or any other decade. The movie really doesn't, yeah, like feel and move like most Hollywood films of, of 1995. Again, another example of, you know, like what, what this film's all about is when you know, Marvin tells Gloria he loves her, and it's like a shot of, of rain out the window with the purple sky as they like, yeah, it just makes me think of, makes me think of 50s melodrama, the way all of a sudden this flourish or color sort of encapsulates this emotion. And I and I love the note, like the, the film ends on, right? So the film ends one year from where it began we're back in new year's eve uh the ladies are cruising around they're singing songs they're hanging out it's no all of my life it's y'all know the movie and yeah like uh, <laughs> another thing these films have in common is uh, slow motion sequences of the four leads doing something in this case all of the women go onto the beach in the Mercedes station wagon that Bernie won in the divorce. And they've got champagne, they've got a fire, and they do like the New Year's countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year. And it goes into like slow motion as all these fireworks are being going off in the cityscape in the background. But like it just keeps getting slower and like the slower motion is like so slow. Like it's not just slow motion, but like it's just like frame by frame. Yeah. It's yeah, it's almost avant-garde. It just starts you know, and I just wrote like bolded, like friendship that will never end, you know? And they're like hugging, there's fireworks going off. This film has this kind of like radical core, right? These women finding self-worth in independence and in independence from men and finding everything they, they need in their friends, in their career, the you know, the ways that people are often, you know, sort of satisfied with their lives. And I think it's worth pointing out that, like, Forrest Whitaker referred to it as a healing narrative. That's what he said this film is. It's a narrative of healing, right? And again, the idea of healing being that you come out stronger than you, you know, sort of were, right? And so all of these women have gone, they've been, they've been through the ringer. And at the end of the day, they're in a much better place than they were a year ago. They're all partying on the beach together with a Mercedes station wagon and a bunch of champagne. And their pals. And their pals for life, you know? Well, we certainly had a lot of pals 
this week. We had eight wonderful pals. Um, so I hope we we filled the quota you were, you were looking for, Alex, in terms of how many pals we could fit in a single episode of of the Gauntlet. Um, so what are when you think about other films about friendship and pals? What are some of the the favorites that come to your mind? Yeah, I'm I'm glad the the your picks went the way that they did because I was making my list before I found out what you were choosing and I was like, crap, they're all about dudes. This isn't good. So um, <laughs> that I I I'm I'm glad I'm glad today wasn't just uh, all boys talk. But what movies came to mind immediately before? Um, were, uh, was The Irishman, which is, uh, as you both know, a movie I can't get out of my head. Um, <laughs> a sadder, probably darker. Another one that I had instantly in mind, and, and I was kind of thinking, like, a subtitle to this episode would be My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. Uh, because one of my favorite movies about friendship is Rio Bravo. Oh, absolutely. Um, another... <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I had a great time. I hope. Hey, uh, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Anytime. I hope your listeners. Uh, what, a, what a treasure. Felt as if I, you know, filled the void a little bit. So it's funny because this episode was a reunion of sorts for what we would deem the porch cinema crew we uh the the three of us collectively have watched many a film whether it's on vhs or just other like 80s 90s programmers we'll often relegate it to um marsh's back porch and that's usually where you know the film's We've come to, it's hard to define into words, but there is a quality amongst (laughs) specific films that make them porch cinema as opposed to one we toss up on the TV. So outside of porch cinema, another thing we all share collectively is something we've started many years ago, which is the Long Cinema Club, the LCC. Um, And this is something we've been doing for years. And without getting into too much detail, essentially, it's just been a project of ours to conquer films that are over 200 minutes. It it started with Satan Tango, really hit its stride with Wang Bing's West of the Tracks. And it's it's gone on and on. The the longer, the better, ideally over eight hours. That's really what we're looking for in the... I like to think we peaked with how Yu Kong moved the mountains. Which in that one, I think was pretty close to to 15 hours. It's been a very storied experience being a part of the the Long Cinema Club, and and that's what we have planned for next episode. So there's going to be a bit of a break. After all, these are a long film we'll have to to tackle, but that's what the the next episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a, a deep dive into a long film, a film likely well over 200 minutes so that's what uh, all our listeners have in store for when when the gauntlet returns yeah a film that's probably longer than like four mo- normal movies right exactly yeah so that's why we're just keeping it to one the idea of doing a double feature with like eight hour films was probably a little too much for us and our listeners look we all we have jobs you know Unless you wanted to finance the gauntlet, send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcasts at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at gauntletmovies. And we'll see you in two weeks for the Gauntlet Presents Long Cinema Club. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You guys help us. Say we make a pact here and now. 
here for each other always, no matter what happens in life. Tina goes off to Hollywood, <laughs> or I marry a rich doctor. We remember this day and this pact. Whenever we need a friend, we're here for each other. We can count on it. Always. No matter what. It's a pact. All for one. And one for all.